I knew that, you know, coming to London, I had four years to get myself a job. Oh, or okay. to get myself a visa. Right. Because otherwise, that's the end of the string. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that if if my my prospects are probably brighter remaining in Europe, just because again to my earlier point about being, you know, at the epicenter of where things are happening is pretty important to get more opportunities, and and whatnot. And you know, coming back to Singapore at that point wouldn't have been right for my for my career because it would be more difficult mm-hmm. to to work on projects, um, um, etc. Uh, so, so there was a, you know, the clock, the clock was ticking and every decision was to maximize the the probability of getting a job, a oh, job okay. and, and getting to stay. Okay. Yeah. And that started from like day one of like arriving, arriving in London. Hey everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Curious. In the day, I work a normal job as a doctor. But in my spare time, I've challenged myself to interview other people with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. The goal is to share their stories and to draw inspiration and wisdom for the rest of us. This is the Alternative CV Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 4 of the Alternative CV Podcast. So today we pick up our conversation with Nabil and the bias on this episode will be more towards the philosophical element of fashion, which is Nabil's topic of expertise. And we also pick up a little bit more about his journey and how he managed to land these big jobs in urban outfitters and what he did whilst he was studying in the London College of Fashion in order to build himself up towards that. So let me introduce Nabil. Nabil is a director of digital fashion in Selfridges, which is a chain of high-end departmental stores in England. In his current role, he leads a team of about 120 people and coordinates Selfridges' brand position across a variety of, med- of media platforms. More about what this job entails can be found in part one, which I strongly advise you to listen to before listening to this part two of our conversation. So back in 2009, Nabil received a Mandaki scholarship to study fashion management in the London College of Fashion. Prior to graduating, he was offered a job as art director in Urban Outfitters, and we'll go into this story today where he rose to the role of creative director before being headhunted to his current position in Selfridges. In 2013, Nabil was also awarded the prestigious Prime Minister's Youth Promise Award by the Government of Singapore. Here's what I learned from this conversation with Nabil. Nabil's clearly a very thoughtful and well-spoken man, and it was really interesting probing his mind on how the fashion industry works. My personal highlight was when we talked about fashion as a lens into society, and how it's always just ahead of the curve in reflecting the prevailing ideas of today. However, this conversation on what is fresh, new and topical is now becoming more and more global, and fashion is celebrating diversity more. So what this means is that Asia, which once was predominantly influenced by Western ideas and is kind of like an idea taker when it comes to fashion, is now becoming a place where we can become contributors by establishing our own cultural identity and by sticking to it. So if you'd like to hear more of Nabil's views on this, then listen on, and I promise that this podcast will be both interesting and, and entertaining, which is what we aim for every single episode on the Alternative CV podcast. So without further ado, here's Nabil and my conversation with him. Could you tell us more about what life in a 
college of fashion is like what what do lessons look like and and i'd love to subsequently go into the projects that you mentioned because you 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 said previously about how it was about learning to live in a big city and finding projects and mm-hmm. finding uh, opportunities that might not be that obvious mm-hmm. so i suppose multi-part, multi-part question mm-hmm. first of all what's life in a fashion school and then what were the projects that you found and how do you find them I think life in a fashion school, to be honest with you, in terms of your day-to-day, is not too dissimilar to life in, in the army. <laughs> <laughs> in that, there's lots of gaps. Um, and, you know, the formal training comes in in the form of several hours a day, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't make use of the extra time that you have, you could easily just not do anything. I um, see. But that's that's the whole point. The, the whole point is that it frees you up to explore and, and really push yourself to to figure out what is it you want to do, what you stand for, what takes your interest. Because it, it, in a way, it creates a safe space for you. Because once you're in the workforce, you don't really have the luxury of time to... Pursue these projects. To Pursue. think. Okay. Or to just to, to, to figure out, you know, what is it that, that you want to you wanna pursue. So, 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 you know... University life for me was 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 predominantly that, but given that there was so much free time, I wanted to put myself, you know, up for for another challenge. So, when I came back from 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 Paris for like the three months that I was in Singapore, before I had to fly to London to start university, I co-founded a magazine, Vulture Magazine. Yeah. Um, and that. Well, it started off as a pet project, but having come from Paris, it gave me more creative conviction to say, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to, there's a, you know, I saw that there, you know, that there weren't that many magazines that reflected what I liked and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, uh, what I think, um, what I'd like to share. We just, we just, we just went at it and, and it kind of, it kind of took flight. Because it was so different. Okay. Um, and the magazine then started, you know, getting momentum, but then I had to fly to London. So the first two years of being in London, I was managing the magazine whilst doing university. Wow. Okay. But, but in a way that... Long distance. Uh, well, no, because we have collaborators right, okay. around the world. Um, so, but it worked in my favor because the magazine gave me access to work on projects in London. Right. So that was another shrewd sort of... Play. Yeah, yeah. Because because I guess one of the challenges of being a student, um, I guess in any industry really, is that you don't necessarily get access yes. to work on real-life projects. Exactly. So I, in a way, used the magazine as a conduit to get all these opportunity. So that therefore, as a student, I could go to Fashion Week. I get to interview, you know, all these designers, blah, blah, blah. So, so in a way, that, that, that was creating the opportunity for myself. I see. Okay. And it's through that that I got my first job. So okay. in, my sec- in my second year of university, I, went, I attended a press day of um, Urban Outfitters. And the creative director then saw the magazine and was intrigued more than anything. Because it was, you know, he... He was expecting a much, you know, 
all day experience um, editor in chief for a magazine. And given the things that we were we 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 were lucky to do, like the profiles that we did on 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 artists, etc. I think he was expecting someone else. But there was as a 21, 22 year old, and the the the, the serendipitous thing was he was looking for. He had been looking for an art director for a year and hadn't found one. And he said, just out of, you know, you know, spontaneity, he said, why don't you just come in and interview for this? Because I think you might be good for it. And he believed in you. He did, but he came from a place of curiosity. Okay. Um, and oh no, he definitely did. Like he was one of my, my mentors, um, Stephen Bryce. He now works at, at, at the Conran shop. Um, Sorry, the what? At the Conran shop. Okay. Um, uh, and it was through the magazine that then I got hired as an art director at Urban Outfitters in my second year of university. Wow. Out of three years. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. So it's a, really, again, it's the same themes of one thing leading to another. Yeah, definitely. And the willingness to try new things, especially with the magazine. If we If we go back to that. Yeah. I can imagine it must be, I think that's, I can imagine myself trying to launch a magazine and there would be scope paralysis because there would be so many things you need to think about. How do you print it? How do you distribute it? How sure. do you get people to collaborate on it? What do you do? Just launch yourself into it? Or did all these things come across your mind? I think part of the, part of the, the, part of the reason why it was successful was because the stakes were not high. I had approached it as a backyard project that to me was just going to be like three months of something to fill the time between Paris and starting university. Mm -hmm. So because there were no real stakes, really, I, I had the freedom to explore, you know, like if, if I were to, if I were to build a magazine today, I would be thinking, right, what's the circulation? What's the print run? How much is it going to cost? Is it, you know, when are we going to break even? What's yeah. the target audience? And sometimes those questions, albeit are important, it bastardizes the yeah. concept. Yes. Um, whereas at that point I was just thinking, what is it that we want to say? What? What is what is it that's not being said in the market? And it was just those two simple questions that, you know, birthed the the aesthetic of the magazine. And a lot of it was born out of, well, firstly, it was instinctive, and B, it was the gathering of like-minded people. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, if anyone asks me how do you build a magazine, I think it starts with the people that you have working, you know, for the for the magazine, mm -hmm. and. It, it just so happened at that time, there was such a hunger for an outlet that is not the glossy magazines and, you know, your, 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 your franchises of, 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 um, um, Western established Western titles. Um, you know, people had a different, um, aesthetic or, or whatnot, and they want to, they want that to be surfaced. So there was, it was almost like it was there and I just captured it or, or, or provide a platform yeah. for them to, to use. Yeah, lots of things intersecting at the right time. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, I've been extremely lucky because timing timing has been kind to me, I think. Yeah. Um, I really love that because I think that anecdote really captures what it means to start off with a hobby or side project, which everyone can do. I mean, you're doing this in addition to your full-time studies. Mm -hmm. 
and you're doing this semi-long distance. I mean, mm-hmm. as you're saying, multiple collaborations across the world. And then it just grew from there mm-hmm. into something that gave you avenue and access to lots more other things. And I can see the same thing with, for example, this podcast I'm doing. I can make the rules. I can, it's backyard project and see how far it goes. Mm-hmm. And I can see the same thing as well with my, you know, the first episode when I when I interviewed my friend Ali. The same thing with his YouTube and with his um the company started just started mm-hmm. as you know side projects that oh this sounds fun even if it does nothing goes nowhere i would have learned something it would be fun to do for a few and then that kind of low stakes but willing to throw yourself wholeheartedly mm-hmm. to it and they just grow it from there mm-hmm. i think and 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 if i were to reflect back on like the, the kind of decisions that i have to make today obviously they are you know on a much much larger scale but what i what i realize is that the bigger you get and not me, and not me personally, but your platform. The bigger your platform is, or the the bigger the stakes are, people tend to obsess with the how rather than the why. So people mm-hmm. could be working on a project for like ten year, ten months, and we can sit down around the table and ask ourselves, "Hang on, hang on, why are we doing this? What are we? Why? What? What? What's the? Mm. What's the? What's the reason for 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 this?" project or or what what inspired us to to begin with oftentimes that that's not clear because a lot of a, a lot of it is how can we make more money or how can we reach a a a a larger audience or you know how are we going to break even but oftentimes those are not the projects that 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 grow and 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 are the most meaningful yeah the why the backstories yeah. and yeah yeah I really like that after your so you, what does the art director do right so <laughs> i had to explain this to um parents no not, not my parents to to i had to explain this to um to to a boardroom once <laughs> because again in, even within 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 uh, um you know fashion businesses it's 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 quite a niche um role so an art director is look at it as an orchestrator of a shoot so, okay. so is the is the is the conductor, yeah, right. So you've got your models, you've got your photographers, you've got your hairstylist, your makeup artist, um, you've got your your director of photography. But the art director is the person that looks at the whole picture and, and asks it, you know, himself or herself, does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Does this make sense in relation to the client brief? Does this make sense um, in relation to you know the the brand's positioning? So. You know, there, there are many, many different forms of art directors, but in essence, that's what they do. They, 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 they are the, 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 the conductors of, of, of a shoot. Pulling, pulling everything together. Basically. Pulling everything together. Um, but it's not, it's not, say, it's not a logistical um, um, remit. It's, it's more... Thematic. Yes, sounds. thematic. That's a good word. Yeah, it's, it's, it's thematic. And it's always a fine balance because when you're dealing with, with aesthetic... Um, an extra of something could ruin the picture or okay. the, the, you know, something missing could make it less believable. So do you have, so you have final say? So like the, the yeah, so the art director t- typically has the final say, um, yeah. on, on, on set. I see. And then you replace, uh, was it Stephen Bryce you were saying? As yes. When, when, when I was at Urban Outfitters. Yes. So, oh gosh, was it maybe two years into the job, three years into the job? Um, and it just so happened to coincide with my graduation. I was made creative director. 
Really? Yeah. So, you, so you were art director for a year whilst... Well, yeah, I was an art director for a year at Urban Outfitters and then I got promoted to um, multimedia creative director. So I look at after sort of the digital aspect of of of, of um, Urban. Um, and then when I graduated, I became creative director. And then I worked there for another two years before I moved to Selfridges. And so when you say the multimedia side yeah. does it mean i mean how would it be different to the non-multimedia well the creative director is the person who looks after um a broader remit right so it's not yeah. just what you put on your website yes so so in a way i was doing the job but 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 focusing on one channel which is which is all things digital okay right i see i see okay and how did you manage to be art director and do your final year at the same time? I That's would imagine. A good, a good question. Again, survival instincts. I knew that, you know, coming to London, I had four years to get myself a job. Oh. Or okay. to get myself a visa. Right. Because otherwise, that's the end of the string, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I know that if, if my, my prospects are probably brighter remaining in Europe, just because, again, to my earlier point about being you know, at the epicenter of where things are happening is pretty important to get more opportunities and, and whatnot. And, you know, coming back to Singapore at that point wouldn't have been right for my, for my career because it would be more difficult mm-hmm. to, to work on projects, um, um, et cetera. Uh, so, so there was a, you know, the clock, the clock was ticking and every decision was to maximize the, the probability of getting a job a oh, job okay and and getting to stay okay yeah and that started from like day one of like arriving arriving in london i'm so glad you brought that up about the to- about the clock being yeah. ticking because i don't think as many people might realize that sang heng was also talking mm. about this about how because of visa restrictions you can't for example wait tables whilst absolutely whilst looking for a job yeah. So there is that for people on visas, like, you know, people who come from Southeast Asia, who come to the UK or to Europe to work, then there is a certain time limit. Which, yeah, there's a time limit. Yeah, there's right? a drive, yeah. which you need to, yeah. So to, to answer your question, how did I do it? I don't know. Will I do it again? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Those were, I want to say, the salad days. Because mm-hmm. it was working effectively three jobs. Um, uh, you know, trying to, trying to, to make it work. But it worked out. Well, I guess, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it a difficult decision to join Selfridges? No, not at all. It was a, you know, it, it, it was, I, I, 10 years ago, I would never have imagined being able to do this, this, this sure. job. Yeah, because it wasn't we, even part yeah. of the equation. That was the last time we met. Yeah, it was the last time we met. You know, if you told me ten, you know, ten years ago that right in ten years, you're going to be working at Selfridges and you're going to have a chance to, to um to shape you know um, uh to shape you know how it looks and and how it feels. That's that that would have been beyond my my wildest wildest <laughs> dreams. <laughs> I'd like to segue a little bit more into fashion right now. Cool. If that's okay with you. Yeah. So what does it mean by the brand position? Like what would you Brand say positioning? The, yeah. What's brand positioning of Selfridges, for example? Right. Um, 
well, brand positioning is, it doesn't even, it, it's not limited to fashion, right? If you put a product in a market, yes. you know, simply put, where does it sit in a, in a, in a, on, on a, on a plane where, you know, how expensive is it? What, what is it perceived to be? Is it a, a consumer good or is it a luxury good? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we take that logic and you apply it to a niche set of products, say fashion products, yeah. um, you're thinking about how is this product different from other fashion brands or how is it different from, you know, um, a different tiers of, of, of brands within, within fashion? Is this a premium product is, or is this a truly luxury product? Okay. Is it British made? Is it, you know, French? Is it Asian or is it American? So how would you describe? Selfridges. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Selfridges is a department store. Yes. So it's a house of brands. Yeah. Um, but what makes it unique is its set of values. Um, is a you know one of one one of which is everyone is welcome. So in its Selfridges has a long history and it's obviously a you know it it it, it occupies a very special place in 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 British. in British yeah history and culture. Um, the the architecture is very iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it throughout its history, it's it's always had this spirit of openness. Um, you know, it, it was, it was there, uh, where, you know, during the suffragette movement. Um, and, you know, at one point, um, um, the suffragettes, um, took over the windows, uh, you know, really? it, yes, it, it, it wow. has, it has, it has this sense of, of social consciousness, which attracted me to it. Um, because if you look at sort of department stores, you can get, you basically, you can get similar products everywhere. Yeah. But what makes it different is the context in which these products are being presented. Okay. So there's a, there's a, there's an additional sort of symbolic production that's pegged onto the products. Okay. Can you give some examples about how this filters down into what the manners street, like what, what I would see, for example? Right. Um, so to, to take it back to sort of what I'm working on, say, yeah. um, tackling diversity within fashion or tackling diversity in, in, in image production. I mean, that's, that's something that, that I'm working on at the moment. Um, you know, in recent years, there, there is a more, um, there's a broader discussion in terms of representation in fashion advertising and, you know, mm-hmm. across, across all sorts of categories, whether mm-hmm. it's ethnicity, whether it's size range, whether it's, um, sexuality or gender. Um, for me, where I thought I could apply most impact is in the representation because yeah, the fact that I've, been hired to do this job and it is itself a quite a powerful message. You know, I am a, I'm, I'm, I'm a Singaporean, you know, hired by a British institution to help mold the imagery of, 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 of Selfridges, you know? So for me, my first port of call was to hire a team that that's diverse. So, yeah, I I think it's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, making sure that there's representation in front of the camera, but, how do you do that if people behind the camera are of just one background? That is really interesting because 
speaking to Sing Heng as well, he was saying that there is this push towards diversity in the acting space, well, in the musical theatre space as well. And that's helped him because it meant that he was up against less competition, actually. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, and I think that the, the, the work's definitely not done. You, you know, fashion's going through a moment now where diversity is topical, but but, you know, there has to be a there has to be a deeper commitment to want to do diversity properly mm-hmm. uh, beyond just a fad for the season. Yeah. Um, and, and I think when diversity stops becoming um, a headline and is just part of the norm, mm-hmm. that's when I think we would have achieved something, but that takes time. You know, um, I remember growing up, you know the sort of imagery that I that I, that I'm exposed to is very specific and it's it's, it's very it's very one note. It's, it's 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 usually you know Western models, lighter skin, and whatnot. And and people I think underestimate how far that goes in shaping your beauty ideals and your perception of of the world. Okay, interesting. Yeah, but that really well said. Yeah. <laughs> how? Okay, this is. A question I've always wondered about: How does the what you see on a runway, for example, translate into what the man on the street wears? Like, how does <laughs> I don't understand the, the the relationship between the extravagant shows at Fashion Week and what you buy in shops? I mean, that's Could you a please very elaborate. Yeah, that's a very loaded question because I think what you're asking effectively is how the fashion system works. Okay, and uh, yeah, traditionally, fashion. You know, if you look at say from the from the 70s to uh, to even like present day you know there's a traditional way of trickle down so you know you would have your runway shows or your couture shows and the idea is that those shows give the brands the credibility to then create commercial products on the back of it i see um you know so so we talked about brand positioning right so yeah. so the the runway shows is almost like a positioning piece to say, hey, right, this is a luxurious, desirable brand. This is what it stands for. It might not necessarily be what you see in stores, but this is uh, this is this is what we stand for. I see. Um, and and off the back of that, you know, brands can sell perfumes. It can sell you know keychains, accessories, and whatnot. But the reason I think your question is really topical is because the um, the the the, the for, retail formats are changing. Uh, you know, digital is changing the landscape dramatically. Um, you know, the, the 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 all sorts of brands who can communicate to their customers directly without having to have, you know, an all singing all dancing mm-hmm. runway show. Yeah. Um, there is a school of thought, to, you know, that says you know these shows are obsolete. Um, it is a very um, um, you know, it says that there, it's a very inefficient way of 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 communicating, communicating newness and presenting um, the brand, because you know if you look at you know retailers like Nike, um, if you look at um, you know some of these bigger corporations, they're already you know they're, they're they're already two three steps ahead, where retail experience becomes the theater. Where you you engage yeah. with the brand, so you don't need a runway show. You don't need you don't need that trickle down effect. You mm. know, it's it's a bit more inclusive and yeah, democratic. It, I think it's 
I, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's slightly more indirect to have brand, to have, you know, show and then to consumer. And I suppose it's a bit more direct to say the consumer's retail experience yeah. directly influences their relationship with the brand. And now, you know, the, people are talking about shopping from film. People are talking about sh- shopping from your hotel room or, you know, the... the uh, the industry is, is much bigger than what it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, it opens up all these pockets of opportunities for for brands to experiment and find new ways of reaching to their customers than, than the, the, the traditional trickle-down effect. Yeah, got it. And so with like Fashion Week and, and houses putting on shows, who decides then who... Is it a collective which which then decides, oh, you know, they, they've done well, this or, or even something say more broader than that, like what the fashion trend of that season is? Mm. Is it a collective or is it a certain powerful people? Or is it, you know, how, how does how's that work? That's a very good question because what, what makes something trend, you know? Yeah. What, in a way, like if you look at memes what memes get to be viral and what memes just die a natural death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a multitude of variables, you know. You have your set of experts or your fashion critics who 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 talk about fashion critically. That could have an impact. And then you've got people with huge, you know, um, influence just by virtue of, you know, the number of followers. Mm-hmm. So there's that, there's that piece. But then there's also sort of a cultural moment that might deem certain brands more relevant than, than others. Yes. But more often than, than not, and this is what I find most fa- fascinating about fashion, is that it always tends to reflect a mood or it's like a snapshot of, of the state of the union of, of, of what's happening culturally. Yeah. And, and, and this was what attracted me to fashion to begin with, because for me, it's because it's applied is it's, it's a form of an applied art. So there's an element of, of, of immediacy to it because it's so tied to commerce and it's so tied to, you know, how confident or how nervous people are with, 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 with their attitudes towards spending that you do see it in real life. So, you know, if, if, if I were an economist, I guess, you know, you're looking at consumer spending. Is it going up? Is it going down? Are people pinching their purses or are they just going on, on a shopping spree? Yeah. What fashion adds to that is many more colors to the spectrum to say, right, they are nervous about shopping, but they want to invest in key pieces that's going to last several seasons. Yeah. Or there's lots of disposable income at the moment. You see an influx of novelty fashion where people are buying pieces for you know three night outs and 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 they chuck it away so it's it's very interesting because in a way it's like observing consumer behavior mm-hmm. does that make sense that does yeah that does <laughs> make sense yeah and i such a fascinating insight into the world of fashion and never understood before i mean all my fashion knowledge is from the devil wears prada <laughs> there you go. well that's one yeah you know that's one um one one way to look at it um but what's fascinating about fashion, I think, is is it's almost a lens into society, society yeah. 
because I mean, most society are organized in a in a in a capitalistic way, right? Yeah, yeah. We're defined by what we purchase or what we don't purchase, what we have and what we don't have. In most societies, I'm not saying all. So, because it's so ingrained in in how we live, how we live our lives, and how we express ourselves, it, fashion becomes this this lens, and and through which you can see the the the, the general theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. So, you know, there's this. I hope. Can you bust the myth about whether fashion is a cutthroat industry in terms of like models or like in people's you know, like creatives? Is that really true? I would say, I think fashion gets a bad rep because everyone had too much fun in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Do explain. Yeah. People describe the eighties as like you know people would describe fashion in the past as a pirate industry because it was not heavily regulated. It was much much smaller. Um, it was a band of you know it, it tends to attract you know um, 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 the Mavericks. So it gets okay. it naturally gets a, a bad rap. And the things that fashion tends to explore or the sources of inspiration often comes from otherness. So fashion, you know, for the longest time has drawn inspiration from subcultures. Yeah. So yeah. it gets this bad rap of like, oh, it's, it's, it's this otherness, right? You know, finding ideas from the mainstream is pretty boring because it's already diluted and yeah. it's too familiar. Yeah. But I want to say fashion today is is too big for people to misbehave. And that's why you have, I'd like to think that's why, you know, what, what what's led to this, this um, um, what, the Me Too movement and people are starting to hold people accountable because it's a serious business. People's livelihoods depend on this industry functioning well and fu- functioning efficiently. Mm-hmm. What's interesting now is that fashion is holding itself accountable increasingly towards you know ideas of sustainability because retail slash fashion is you know one of the highest um contributors to 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 waste yeah. and 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 to the climate crisis as as it were yeah um it, it's interesting that the you know with more regulation and people taking it seriously as as a, as an industry that the attitudes within fashion, you know, have have changed in accordance to that. Yeah, that's so. It comes back to what you were saying about fashion being a lens into society, because all these things are very topical and very. Well, yeah, they are very topical. And, well, absolutely, and I think that's the next front uh, frontier to be able to influence how people consume in a sustainable way. Is 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 probably the next big thing in fashion, and it's exciting for fashion because it extends beyond just fashion with a capital F yeah. because it has the opportunity to influence how we consume things, consume anything, yeah. you know, how we buy other things from cars to homes to, 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 to everything that we, we, we consume. Yeah. I can see a lot of broader themes about like thought leadership and being ahead of the curve. It is. Yeah. And that's what I suppose all these fashion shows show as well that you know that you are well the best fashion brands are the ones which are slightly ahead of the curve yeah and i think you know um you know the the, the conglomerates like carrying um who are taking an active role 
in 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 sustainability selfridges has a very very strong view and strong position in 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 um leading in sustainability which is also one of the reasons why i'm 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 you know i feel really really fortunate to to be working to be working at selfridges um because the ambition is more than just to sell more things mm-hmm. um you know there's there's an element of of social responsibility that is central to its existence that's not just a csr thing that yeah. you know the corporate office will deal with and that comes back to the suffragettes and the yeah. brand identity yeah exactly exactly so we're going to take a completely different turn here yeah and talk about the fact that you've worked in london you've had some time in paris yes. you've collaborated with people all around the world mm-hmm. these are fashion capitals what would you say is the asian equivalent that's a good question. Mm. Equivalent in terms of cultural centers or mm. I haven't thought the question out that well. But Because yeah. here's the here's the reality, right? Most the, the lots of Asian countries are factories for the fashion industry. So a lot of fashion is out a lot of fashion production is outsourced whether to Bangladesh or you know to Indonesia, to China, in a way, they're very much part of the supply chain and part of the fashion industry, in the broader fashion industry. But if you're looking at just the cultural centers, then it's hard to say because I don't know if it's Tokyo. I don't know if it's Seoul or it's Shanghai. You know, it might be Singapore. Um it depends on where the conversation, what the conversation is. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a, there's, I read an article that um, India is about to make a big, you know, it's about to have a big moment because it has the, one of the fastest growing um, middle-class um, in the world. Yeah. Um, that's going to be interesting. And that might mean that you might see more, you know, models of Indian heritage in advertising, or you might get lots more, Indian designers um, going into sort of the fashion mainstream. Yeah. I don't think there is a fix, especially now when everything is so connected. I don't think there's a fix um, roster of cities that are quote unquote allowed to be part of the fashion conversation. Yeah. Great. You know, because I I think customers are going to go to what's the newest, the freshest and what brings the most value to them. And geography doesn't really mean much these days. I don't think. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I were to contextualize this a little bit more into, for example, Southeast Asian or Singaporean context, there is an argument for creatives, as you were saying. Um, you find so many people with such good creative talent in Singapore, but there is certain element of you need to be in the right geography to get these opportunities. What would you do to what? Th- what do you think? for example, Singapore or Southeast Asia can improve on to make itself more part of this conversation, hmm. to give them the, give these creatives the opportunities. Hmm. I don't know if Singapore and Southeast Asia are one and the same. Okay. Because there's, I think there are different complexities. Yeah. If I look at sort of Jakarta versus Singapore, I think there are two cultural cities that are in very different points of their journey i think there's probably a lot more um 
creativity on the ground in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, then there is in Singapore today, as far as I can see. But again, you know, I want to caveat this because I haven't been back in a while. And when I go back is, you know, for a couple of days to see my family. So a lot could have changed. Um, but I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm referencing it based on, you know, the time that I spent growing up in Singapore. Yeah. And I think it, it boils down to that creative conviction and a lot of, um, as far as tastes and preferences were, you know, concerned at least 10 years ago, a lot of it is based off what is deemed valid or beautiful by Western culture. Okay. I think the way for us to win is to dig deep in terms of what we stand for and, you know, what, what it means to be a creative from Singapore. You know, what, what does it mean? Um, what does it stand for, really? I see where you're, getting, where you're getting at. A lot of important ideas. But if yes. you look at somewhere like, for example, Korea or Japan, they have very strong cultural identity and the fashion sure. is based on that. Am I getting the right drift? Yeah, no, 100%. And also, I don't have the answer to this because I'm, you know, me personally as a Singaporean creative, I'm still trying to f figure it out in terms of what I should stand for. Um, I, 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 I am drawn to certain narratives, whether it's diversity or, you know, uh, yeah, well, I guess diversity is one of them. But these aren't topics that are unique to Singapore per se. So there isn't, there, I haven't found, you know, a, a set of traits that I could say these are very Singaporean aesthetic, yeah. you know, there yeah. isn't a, there isn't a, there, there isn't a, a flag to wave per se. Whereas, you know, narratives like, um, sort of black culture is, is, is so evolved yeah. and, and it's so identifiable. The aesthetic is so identifiable. If you, if you talk about sort of Chinese creatives and Chinese aesthetic, you know, it, there's a very clear visual aesthetic. Yeah. But if I were to say, right, Singapore creative, it's, it's, it, I can't see it yet. Okay. Does that make sense? Because yeah, maybe it's still, because it's, it's still, just not it's, enough, it's not, not enough time. It's not developed to, yet. Yeah. 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 But I think exciting things are happening, right? Mm -hmm. In Singapore, I feel like people are, uh, you know, people are, are, are taking more risks. People are exploring other options than just sort of the cookie cutter um, uh, paths, and and at one point I I I I'm sure it will it will hit a critical mass and and we'll we'll find that 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 aesthetic. Yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. Um, final few questions. Sure. This feel free to pass on this, <laughs> but it's just a fun question for me. What do you think? Uh, if you could. Give somebody a piece a piece of advice to instantly make them more fashionable. You know? <laughs> fashionable, <laughs> like if, for example, you know, kind of like uh, wear piece. wear wear uh, wear clothes that fit you. Like, you know, any kind of first principles, rules of thumb that would be instantly improve your look. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Um, I think. If you step out of the house and you feel uncomfortable, chances are that's not the right fashion choice for you. Okay. Um, I don't think there should be a pressure to be fashionable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think there should be 
I, I think it should be more about is what I'm wearing reflective of who I am and how I feel. Yeah. So dressing for yourself and not dressing for other people. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that then that self-confidence will yeah, kind of it, shine through a bit more. This identity is, it's, it's all that, it's all that, but it's, it's about you. It's not about, it's not about other people. Brilliant. I love that. Is there, just to pick your, your brains, are there any, is, was there anything that you've recently read or listened to or watched that has made you really think? Hmm. Got you thinking. I read Michelle Obama's uh, biography. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Becoming? Yeah. It's incredible. Oh, good. It's incredible. Um, I found it incredible because with, you know, she occupies such a profound place in history and she managed to tell that story through very plain words yeah. and through experiences, anecdotes that everyone can relate to. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so powerful. And I, before I read it, I was expecting this to be one thing, but, but having read it, you know, it, it, I, for me, it's even more, you know, what she stands for is, is even more powerful because of where she came from, mm-hmm. you know, she came from the South side in Chicago. Um, you know, she worked hard. She, she was, it's basically the American dream, but so much more, you know, it, uh, to me, it really, it really, it really made me think, um, it made me think about legacy. It made me think about impact. It made me think about representation because she had a very interesting journey because she came from, from Chicago and the South side and that identity never left her, but she wore it in a different way throughout her journey, if that makes sense. So there's a, there's a middle part of her career where she had to assimilate. Do, do you see the same in yourself, the Singaporean identity kind of transmitting into what... Yeah, you're... I guess I'm trying to, right? Because yeah. maybe that's why it had such a profound effect on me. You know, how do you represent where you come from, but still able to navigate through the complexities of, of, of systems that are foreign to you? Yes. Um, how do you participate in that and not fight against it mm-hmm. whilst not giving yourself up completely? Yeah. And 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 having read her biography, I saw how how she didn't trade anything off in terms of her identity. Yeah. Instead, she she crafted her own. And because of that, she she's the first of 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 many things. And that's why, you know, she 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 she's so powerful, I I guess, symbolically and 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 otherwise, I suppose. Yeah. How do you adapt but stay true? How you adapt? Well, yeah, I think that's really difficult. I think, you know, I I speak to a lot of, 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 of people that I've worked with and and some of my friends who are not working in, 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 in places where they were, they were born and struggling with ideas of rootedness and identity. Um, and, and then I guess there's something that we can, we can take from, from, from her, her memoir. Yeah, I'm sure we can. Last question, Nabil. Advice you'd give to somebody who is interested in pursuing a career in fashion, somebody who was standing at a crossroads. You you were there at one point. We <laughs> talked about that. Yeah. Back in you know, in the earlier part of this of the show. Um what advice? 
I don't know what advice I would give to someone else because again, everyone's position and circumstances are different. But what advice I would give to myself, yeah, I would say maybe 10 years ago would be to keep opening those doors and don't feel don't feel pressured that don't feel don't don't feel pressure if you don't find what you're looking for behind that first door because it's a lot of it is trial and error and putting yourself out there um which is a very vulnerable thing to do but if you don't do that then many more doors wouldn't have opened that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Nabil. Thank you. It was so fun talking to you. This is crazy because I've not actually processed this. I haven't had time to process this, um, you know, in, in the last few years. So thanks for this this opportunity. Yeah, I, I hope you've had fun as well. Yeah. Uh, if people want to find out more about you or get in touch or anything, is there anywhere they can go to find out more about you? Well, yeah, I'm on Instagram. <laughs> That's Nabil Alifi at N-A-B-I-L-A-L-I-F-F-I. Brilliant. Thank you. Great, thank you. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. As always, show notes as well as links to everything that we've talked about can be found on the website alternativecv.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or learned something from it, do consider sharing it with your friends. Also, please consider subscribing to this podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. Most importantly though, please consider leaving a review as it helps other people discover this podcast via the iTunes algorithms. If you have any feedback about how I can improve or any suggestions about guests you'd like to see me interview on this show, do get in touch at hello at alternativecv.fm. See you next time.